0: Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. All right, so we're going to look at hopefully two the last two churches in Revelation like the full book of Revelation, but we're going to look at Philadelphia and Laodicea. So let's first of all look at um, the church at Philadelphia. If you came in late, I know you guys have a handout. The PowerPoint's a little wonky, so it may not everything may not be on the screen um, the way it is on your sheet, but you've got a sheet in front of you, so I'm not really sure why we have PowerPoint, just so you can have two ways of interacting. So, all right. Well, let's talk. Let's read um, chapter three, starting in verse seven. The church at Philadelphia. And to the church, or to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door. Which no one is able to shut. I know you have but little power, and yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie, behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I've loved you. Because you've kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial. That is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. To the one who conquers I will make him a pillar and the temple of my God, neither shall he never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name, he who has an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All right. Since I wasn't here last week, just a little bit of review. Each of the letters has seven parts. We start out with the introductory address just to the angel of a church in Philadelphia. What does history teach us about Philadelphia? It was strategically located on the Roman imperial postal route And it earned a nickname, Gateway to the East. Now, in America, what city is the gateway to the West? Anybody know? St. Louis. You got the St. Louis Arch. This was the gateway to the East. It was very important for commercial trade. Um, Literally, it was the city with the open door. It was an open door of trade. Okay, so that was the nickname of the town. The town of the open door. Now, that will come important as we just read. It was a very fertile area, a lot of vineyards, because there was a lot of volcanic activity that made the soil very rich. Um, It was a city that allowed the Greek culture to spread throughout Asia Minor just because it was such a commercial trade center. Okay, Philadelphia. Now, the second aspect or the second part of the letter, is the aspect of Christ's appearance. Now, what have we seen in the first six churches when Christ shows up? It takes us back to chapter 1, to the vision of what John saw in Jesus. Remember, he had eyes like fire, and hair as white as wool, and um, feet like burnished bronze, and and a voice of many waters. One thing you'll notice here is that Jesus does not identify himself with any of those previous images in John. Um, He identifies himself as the holy and true one who has the key of David. Now, it's interesting that Jesus calls himself the holy one. Uh, To a Jewish person, that may be a little troublesome because only God, Yahweh in the Old Testament, was referred to as the holy one of Israel When Jesus says, I'm the holy one, basically, again, he's he's making himself equal with God, the Father, that he is holy. He's the great I am. Um, He's also called the true one, the holy and true. Um, When when you think of true, there's two ways you can take that word. Um, Not only is Jesus the authentic, like he's the true, genuine Savior and Lord, like true, can be an adjective, like He is the true Savior, the genuine Savior. Or you can also take it as a noun that He is truthful or trustworthy. Um, True was oftentimes used of God's character in the Old Testament when God was true to His covenant. Um, so Jesus is the holy and true Savior. But what does it say He does? He holds the key of David. Now, what does it mean that He holds the key of David? Now, first of all, who was is David? Israel's greatest king. When, Okay, so David's a kingly image in the book of Revelation, and we'll get to this next fall, but I'll introduce it to you now. Keys... Revelation's got a lot of symbolism on keys. What do keys represent? Authority to what? Open and close, shut, keep out. A key represents authority, kingly authority. Okay? So when it talks about Jesus having the key of David, it really goes back to the Old Testament, Isaiah twenty-two, twenty-two. I will place on his shoulder. This is a prophecy about Jesus, the Messiah. I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and no one shall shut. He shall shut and no one shall open. Okay, read verse seven. The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. That's almost a direct quote from Isaiah twenty-two twenty-two. Now, what does it mean? What's the significance of Jesus having these keys, the kingly keys of David? Why is he opening? What does it mean he opens and shuts and shuts and opens? Okay, here's what was going on in that culture. Notice who he addresses there in verse 9. He talks about the synagogue of Satan again. We've already seen that. False teachers who were Jewish who were in the synagogue system in the town of Philadelphia, what they were doing was this. In the town of Philadelphia, the Christians were being barred entrance into the Jewish synagogue. Basically, they were being kicked out of the Jewish synagogue because they were coming to faith in Christ. Literally, in the mind of a Jewish person, they were being shut out of the house of worship. And Jesus says, listen, it's not the Jewish synagogue system That gives you connection to God, it's through me. You may be getting kicked out of the synagogue, but ultimately I'm the one who has the authority to let people in and let people out. Okay, what did Jesus say about himself in John 10? I am the gate, or I am the door. Okay, he holds the keys, he's the gate. What Jesus is basically saying is, I have the kingly authority to determine who gets into heaven and who doesn't, and it comes through me as the door. I hold the keys. Okay? Now, there's a little spiritual evaluation here. Normally at this time, Jesus would say, I know your works. I know where you live. Um, He says that in verse 8. I know your works. But then he doesn't go on to say what their works are. Notice what he says, before I've set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. Okay, I set before you. Now, what did I say Philadelphia was known? What was the nickname of Philadelphia? The city of the open door. That was their nickname. And Jesus says here, I've set before you an open door. Now, what is this open door? What's he talking about? It's the, it's the imagery of the gate, the imagery of the only way. Jesus is the only way. He's the only door. He's the only one who, who you can have an access to God through. And if, as you come in repentance and faith to Christ, He's going to shut you into Himself. He's going to close that. Like, so think about it this way. If salvation's a door and you go up to the door, you can't get into the door by your good works. Only by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone can you have salvation. Once Christ opens that door by grace and you're allowed into His presence, He shuts the door behind you, and and it means that you'll never go back to your old life. It's kind of a picture of eternal security. Once you're in salvation, you're always secure in there. And here's what Jesus is saying, especially in these seven churches, because of all the heresy, all the persecution. Basically, what Jesus is saying is this. No human government, whether it's the Roman Empire, no heretical sect, whether it's the Nicolaitans, no false teacher, no Roman government, no human power can thwart Christ's sovereign purposes of ensuring that his people will come to faith in him. Think about closed countries for a moment. Are there people coming to faith in North Korea? Yes. Is the government stopping them from coming? If God has his people scattered throughout all the nations, nothing is going to stop his people from coming to him. Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. The sheep hear my voice and they will come. And so nothing, if if you are to come to Christ, nothing will stop you from coming to Christ. He's got the power. Now, notice what he says to them. You have little power. Now, I know this was a few weeks ago, but do you remember Sardis? What did we say was the church in Sardis? They were the mega church. They were the happening church. They they had this reputation of being alive, but they were dead. They were the church that was the powerhouse. There was no persecution in that town. They they were the popular church. They had all the programs. They had the budget. They had the personality. Um, they, They had everything. In the world's eyes, they would have been the ones that were powerful. And what does Jesus say to Philadelphia? I know you have little power in the world's eyes. In the world's eyes, you're not this big mega church. In the world's eyes, you don't, you don't have the dynamic speakers. You don't have the great programs. You're a little struggling band of believers trying to survive in this city. You're not popular. You're not going to make the front page of the Church, church Growth Magazine. You're not going to be in denominational newsletters. Your pastor's not going to be invited to huge conferences. You're a small, little band of faithful believers that has little power in the eyes of the world. Now, what two specific works does Jesus give attention to? I know your works. What does he say? I know you have but little power, yet two things. You've kept my word and you've not denied my name. Now, we've seen this as a recurring theme through the book of Revelation. This is probably one of the, the most important themes in the book of Revelation. Those who are believers endure to the end by keeping their testimony, by keeping their faith, by holding fast to the truth. Okay, So they are keeping the Word. They, they have strong theology. They're not denying His name. They're, not, they're, they're a small little band of believers who are very, very faithful. Now, remember every time... Jesus will talk about, I know your works. He comes along and does what? But I have this against you. What did he say to Ephesus? You've lost your first love. Or you tolerate that Jezebel. Or you hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. I have these things against you. What words of correction or rebuke do you find here in Philadelphia? There are none. So there are two churches... There are two churches of the seven churches that Jesus doesn't have anything against them. Smyrna, the second church, and Philadelphia. Now, what's the similarity between both of those churches? Extreme persecution, small in number, holding fast to the gospel. So, in the world's eyes, they may be relatively little, not significant, extreme persecution, but Jesus says, I have nothing against you. Okay? Now, what are the words of encouragement and exhortation that Jesus gives them? This is a little difficult to to understand here. Smyrna and Philadelphia, evidently both these churches had um, Jews who were not true Jews, I guess false Jews, that were part of the synagogue of Satan. Basically what was happening was ethnic Jews in Philadelphia we're raining down extreme persecution on the Christians, okay? And what does Jesus say here in verse 9? Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they're Jews and not, they lie, I will make them come and bow down before you. Now, what do we know about quote unquote ethnic Jews. And these are these are not these are false Jews. They're 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 prideful Jews. They're persecuting the Christians basically in their pride and arrogance. This particular group, this is not all Jews, remember, this is just this particular group in Philadelphia. These Jews here in Philadelphia thought they were God's chosen people. It's upon ethnicity and national identity. And they were saying kind of like the Judaizers that we're looking at in Galatians. What, all right so let's 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 cross pollinate here, okay? Wednesday night, Sunday morning, the Bible comes together. Okay, so you guys tell me. We've been in Galatians for a few months now. Who are the Judaizers? They're a group of Jewish quasi-Christians who've done what? They've come to the Gentiles and said what? You have to be circumcised. You have to have kosher diet. They're adding on to grace alone requirements. And what does Paul say? Let him, be, let him be damned to hell. I mean, let, let, I mean, Paul doesn't pull any punches. Okay. So there are ethnic Jews who are putting pressure on Gentiles, and maybe these are, these are converted Jews, we don't know, but basically they're saying that the only way to truly have a relationship with God is if you are an ethnic Jew. Puts every one of us in this room out of, out of, out of hope, doesn't it? Unless you're all ethnic Jews. I, obviously, you can tell I'm not, okay? Unless his name is, you know, Sean Colstein or something like that or, or I don't know. <laughs> Unless the Jewish people were the O'Shaughnesses back in the day in the old country. But um, so Paul, and we'll get to this in Galatians chapter 6, but what Paul says this. He makes an interesting statement. In Galatians 6, 14 through 16, Paul says, Far be it for me to boast. What would Paul boast in? I'm a Jew. I'm a Pharisee. I've got the credentials. Far be it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. So what's he saying? saying, It doesn't matter if you're circumcised. It doesn't matter if you are circumcised. What matters is if you've been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and you are a new creation in Christ. And look at what he says in verse 16. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. He's calling Gentiles the Israel of God. So who's the true Israel? those who have trusted Christ for salvation and have been connected by faith to the true Messiah. It's not circumcision. It's not ethnic identity. It's not all these things. And so Jesus says to the struggling group of probably Gentiles, could be converted Jews, but we're in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. This is a Greek Greek culture. Jesus says, listen, these Ethnic Jews are coming and they're persecuting you, they're causing pressure. You know what I'm gonna make them do? What's he say? I'm gonna I'm gonna have them come and bow down before your feet and learn that I've loved you. Now think about this for a moment. In a Jewish mindset, who's the top dog? A Jew or a Gentile? A Jew. And in the Old Testament, what was going to happen to all the Gentile nations? We're going to come bow down to the Jews because they're God's people. And what does Jesus say? (laughs) They're going to come come bow down before you. Um, This is steeped in Old Testament imagery. Um, Isaiah 60, verse 14, The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah 45, 14-15, Thus says the Lord, The wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you, saying, Surely God is in you, and there's no other God, no God besides him. Truly you are a God who hides yourself, O God of Israel, the Savior. So this was the hope of the Israelites in the Old Testament, that the Gentile nations, Egypt, Cush, The Gentile nations would come and bow down at their feet and Jesus abruptly turns the tide and says, these Jews in Philadelphia are going to come and bow down at the feet of Gentiles. Now, what does this mean? What does it mean? Well, there's some debate. Does this mean literally that that church in Philadelphia would have a bunch of Jewish people come into the church and say, okay, we're going to bow down before you now. Is it talking about something in the future? Let me tell you what most scholars believe it means and what I think it means. Again, I can't be dogmatic on this because, again, some of these things in Revelation you just can't be. I think... It means the conversion, the salvation of some of these Jewish persecutors who come to faith in Christ and would acknowledge him as Messiah. In other words, we know from Romans chapter 9 and 11, 9 through 11, there will be a future, maybe massive conversion of Jewish people in, the, in the, like the literal last days. Or it could be in Philadelphia, what Jesus is saying is, listen, those that are persecuting you right now, they're actually going to come to faith. And they're going to, in a way, have to repent and eat crow and they're going to be part of your fellowship. And they'll bow down before Jesus as Savior and Lord. Again, we really don't know. What we do know is that persecution was going on. It was by Jewish people who were prideful, and Jesus turns the table. And notice what Jesus says the whole point of this is. What's he say? At the end of verse 9, They will learn that I have loved you. This is the only church out of the seven where Jesus explicitly says that he loves them. Now, does that mean Jesus doesn't love the other seven churches or other six churches? No. Interestingly, Galatians 2:20, we looked at this Sunday, "I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me in the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me." Oftentimes when it talks about Christ loving us, it's always in the past tense. Notice what Jesus says. They will know that I have loved you. It's in past tense. Now, would Jesus be wrong if he says, they will know that I love you, present tense. Whenever the Bible says God or Jesus loved you, what's it pointing to? It's a past tense, right? What was that point in time in the past tense where God fully expressed his love for his people? What do we call that? The cross, the cross. So Jesus is talking about the cross. What he's saying is, We don't deserve that love. We can never begin to earn that love. But Jesus proved his love for us by dying on the cross. Okay? Now, here's where we get to a really difficult passage. There's there's a lot of different interpretations on this. Verses 10 and 11. Because you've kept my word about patient endurance. Okay, what have they done? They haven't denied the faith. They've been patient. What does Jesus say? I will keep you from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Now, I want to see what some of your translations say because does anybody say, does it say I will keep you from the hour of trial? Is the word from? Does all of you say from? Okay. How do you take the word from in English? Okay, a careful study of the Greek text actually translates this as a trial that is about to come. Okay, now, what is the trial that's about to come? Remember, this is a specific church, Philadelphia, he doesn't say this to any of the other six churches. It's specific to Philadelphia. Let me tell you um, the different views, okay? If you're a dispensationalist, which which I am not, but if you are a dispensationalist, and you don't don't need to worry about the, the title, some commentators of the dispensationalist viewpoint see this as what they would call the Great Tribulation, that seven years of tribulation. They look at this as code language for a secret rapture of the church where the church will be taken out of that and won't have to suffer. Now, just let me ask you a question. Does it say anything about a seven years? Does it say anything about a rapture? Is it said about all the other churches? It's just specific to that church. Okay? Now, here is the question with that little preposition from. So, It may be a great tribulation in the future or it may be something that's a little bit more immediate to what Philadelphia is going to be going through. But the question becomes, okay, is Christ promising deliverance from the trial or through the trial? Okay, so two prepositions. You guys tell me we got from and we got through. There's a huge difference between those two words, right, in English. What does from indicate? You won't go through it. You will be protected out of it. What does through mean? You're going to go through it, but you'll be protected through it. Okay? There's a dispute over that little word in the Greek language commentators have disputed, does it mean from or out of or does it mean through? Because depending on how you translate that, that makes a big difference, doesn't it? Now, let me just tell you my personal opinion. I could be wrong on this. I don't personally see this as a future tribulation period because it's only limited to one church. It doesn't mention a seven years. It says it's about to come. Um, I don't think this is talking about a tribulation that's going to happen thousands of years in the future. Now, I do believe, okay, let me say, this, this passage right here I don't think is talking about a future tribulation. With that being said, let me tell you that I do believe before the end there will be an intensified time of tribulation. Whether that's seven years, whether that's three years, I don't know. I just know that the Bible teaches there's going to be an intense time of tribulation. Now, what did Jesus tell his disciples in John 17, 15? I do not ask that you take them out of the world. Okay, out of? I don't ask you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Now... What I want to do here is I want to shatter some of your preconceived notions about the book of Revelation. Everybody talks about a future great tribulation. The great tribulation. The seven-year great tribulation. Tribulation is happening right now. Now, how do I know that? Go back to chapter 1. Go back to chapter 1. And look at verse 9. I, ch- Chapter 1, verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the what? What does your Bible say? Tribulation and kingdom and patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God, and the testimony of Jesus Christ. What does John consider himself going through? Tribulation. Since the fall of of man in the garden, and until Jesus comes back and establishes the new heavens and the new earth, there's always going to be times of tribulation. Are there people in the world right now that are struggling persecution? Here's the problem with the way we as Americans read the book of Revelation. We've been conditioned because we've had so many freedoms for so long to think that we're never going to go through any type of suffering. Now, there's a really good Greek word for that. It's called baloney. (laughs) Nowhere in the Bible do I ever see Christians being immune from persecution or suffering. Because there's people in the world right now that are experiencing extreme suffering. And if you look at the past 2,000 years of church history, there have been pockets of suffering. So no matter where you go in the world right now, there's going to be different intensities of tribulation. In America, we don't experience a lot of it, at least yet. Go to North Korea, go to the Sudan, go to Somalia, go to places like that. Ex-Soviet Union, extreme tribulation. Now, with that being said, I think this is something that was going to happen to the Christians in Philadelphia specifically. And I think what it means here. Jesus is saying, I'm not going to protect you from persecution, but I'm going to spiritually protect you through that persecution that you won't fall away. Okay? So if we're going to debate whether it's from or through, and again, we can't be dogmatic, I would take it through. I think what Jesus is saying is, Philadelphia church, you're about to go through something pretty extreme. You're about to go through an intense period of tribulation. And I'm going to help you through it that you won't deny my name, that you won't fall away. Because remember, what did he say to Smyrna? I'm about to throw some, you know, the devil's about to throw some of you in prison. And Jesus says, you're not going to get out. You're, some of you are going to die for your faith. Now, i want to teach you guys a word, and we'll come back. Don't, don't, don't remember this now. You can put it in your thinking bank all throughout. The book of Revelation, there's a description. Those who dwell on the earth, earth dwellers. That is a symbol, that is a metaphor for the lost world. Christians are never called those who dwell on the earth. Why do we not dwell on the earth? Now, obviously, where do we live? We live on the earth. Doesn't mean we're floating off in outer space somewhere, but it means we are not of this world. So Christians in the book of Revelation are those who have not denied Christ, those who have remained true to Christ, those that are sealed on their foreheads, those that are protected by Christ. We are never called those who dwell on the earth. Earth dwellers are those who have their their feet firmly planted in this world system. Okay, so what what does John say here? Verse 10, because you've kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from or through the hour of trial that's about to come on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Who's it going against? Those who dwell on the earth. Now, verse 11, I am coming soon. This makes it even more confusing. Is that talking about the second coming of Christ? Not necessarily. In all of these letters, what does Jesus say? If you don't repent, I'm going to what? I will. What did he say to Ephesus? If you don't repent, I'm going to come soon and remove your lampstand. What did he say to Pergamum? If you don't repent, I'm going to come soon and war against you with the sword that's in my mouth. What did he say to to Sardis? If you don't repent, I will come to you like a thief in the night. This is a good thing for Philadelphia. If this is an immediate trial that Philadelphia is going to have to go through, when Jesus says, I'm coming soon, what I think he means is the coming of Christ meant impending judgment on an unrepentant congregation. That's what we we saw in the the other letters. Yet with Philadelphia, the coming of Jesus means that he will protect them through the trials and ensure that they remain faithful in their gospel witness. Because what does he say? I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one seizes your crown. No. Okay, so let's just wrap this all together because this is, this is so, kind of confusing. There are two schools of thought on this. Some interpreters take this to mean Jesus is talking about a future end times tribulation worldwide and his second coming. That's a fair interpretation. I don't necessarily take that interpretation. I take it to be more localized to Philadelphia that they particularly were going to go through a period of intense persecution, and Jesus says, I'm coming soon to give you strength to go through it. Either way you look at it, if you believe, let me just say it this way, okay. If you believe in a secret pre-tribulation rapture where the church is taken out, which I don't personally but if you believe that how will you be prepared if it doesn't happen You understand what I'm saying One thing that we cannot do is have this mentality that we're never going to experience persecution Now it may not be like your older generation some of us are some of us are younger and some of us are a lot younger um <laughs> It, you don't have to be a, a prophet or son of a prophet to see, unless God brings a third great awakening in America, are things going to get better or worse? worse? Worse. Okay? We are just one election away from Marxism. I'm not trying to get political. But you don't have to look around the world to see, our or country to see that Marxism, socialism, communism, is being embraced by the younger generation those in college and high school right now are being indoctrinated to marxism so that when it's time for them to be the leaders in charge of our nation they've already bought it hook line and sinker and by then they will be opening themselves to a totalitarian state because that's just what they're used to group think not that far away from it conceptually. Okay. For far too long in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and 80s when things were going well, what was the theology? We got it good here in America. We're never going to suffer. We've got a place in society. You know, we're, 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 we're stakeholders in the culture. For the most part, we have a Judeo-Christian culture. Where is that now? It's gone the way of the unicorn. What? Six feet under? Okay. So what I'm just trying to tell you is one of my, regardless of what you, all right, let me me say it this way. Regardless of what you view about the end times, whether you believe in a pre-trib rapture or not, whether you, take that, take your end times view away. One of my jobs as a pastor is to help you prepare for suffering and to suffer well. Whether that's through cancer health, financial issues, or persecution. But what does Jesus promise here? I will help you through it. Okay. Now, let me just say this. God and His sovereignty can sometimes take you out of it. He's more than capable of doing that. And praise the Lord when He does. And that's what we would hope for. But if God doesn't take you out of it, He will promise to be there with you through it. So either way, you're never left on your own. You always have the promise of Christ being there for you. And remember who this church is. This is a church that has little power, major persecution. They're about to experience an extreme trial. And Jesus says, I'm coming to be there with you. And he has nothing against them. Okay? Now, what's the promise to the overcomer? This is an interesting thing because usually... Like when Jesus says to the one who comes, I will give such and such. This has four things. Four, which is a lot. Four things. Jesus promises he'll do four things. Number one, and remember, I'm giving you guys some review. Almost every verse in Revelation takes you back to an Old Testament, either prophecy, illusion, or reference. There are more references or imagery or or symbolism in Revelation revelation to the Old Testament than any other book. So, the problem sometimes that we don't understand revelation is we don't know our Old Testament as well as we should. But hopefully some of these images you'll understand. Okay, verse 12. To the one who conquers, remember that word's the word Nike, to the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Okay, now does that literally mean... We're going to be a piece of marble, concrete, you know, and God's going to stick us in. All right, so what's the temple? What's a temple? The temple in the Old Testament was where God dwelt. What's a pillar? Holds it up. Okay. In the analogy of what the Bible teaches, who's the foundation? Who's the cornerstone? Jesus. Jesus is the corner. actually the, Peter says he's the cornerstone and he's the capstone. He's the top and the bottom. And we are being built as spiritual stones into a, a royal house, a royal priesthood, a, a holy nation. okay? Now, the church, Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 15, "If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar, and buttress of what truth Truth. okay now okay so think think in your imagery here okay think of the all right so i'm going to draw something here okay We're, we're talking the greek world right you guys have seen greek architecture okay so you have like think about the parthenon i mean a lot of our i don't know exactly what it looks like but what is it you got all these big steps come through, and, and a lot of our nation's monuments are, are patterned after this Greek architecture. So you got this big, old, huge, massive structure, temple. And, and so here's the here's the capstone, here's the foundation. What are these things? Pillars. What do the pillars do? The pillars provide support. Okay? So when Jesus says, I will make you a pillar. In the household of God, it's a metaphor for stability and permanence. Basically, Jesus is saying, you're going to be forever, permanently in my family. You're a good source of strength. Yes, yeah, a good source of strength, yeah. Now, here's where it's interesting to the city of Philadelphia. Faithful servants of the city of Philadelphia... Were sometimes honored by having a special pillar added to one of the temples and ascribed with their name. So, if you went to a temple in Philadelphia, if you were a faithful civic person, you know, a mayor or somebody, and you know that served the city well, you would get your own name inscribed on a pillar. So, to the city, that was a big deal. If you lived in Philadelphia, ooh, if I live in Philadelphia, my name's on the pillar. That means I was a faithful servant. Jesus takes an image from their culture and says, listen, it doesn't matter what a passing city puts your name on a pillar that's going to fall down. The most important thing is I'm, I'm not just going to write your name on the pillar. I'm going to make you into a pillar into my household. You're going to have permanence, okay? It's the metaphor of being honored with eternal life. Look at, verse, look at the second half of verse 12. Never shall he go out of it... Never shall he go out of what? The temple of my God. So once God... So think of the imagery. Once God sticks you in his house as a pillar, you ain't never coming out. (laughs) Okay? It's this permanence. Now here's one thing I left out about Philadelphia. Out of all the cities in Asia Minor, it was the most susceptible to earthquakes. In A.D. 17 there was what we call the big one, okay, that leveled the entire city. The only things that remained from these earthquakes were the pillars. So what is a pillar? So think about this, guys. If an earthquake comes and shatters and destroys your whole town, is that a major trial? Okay, that's a major trial. What's left the pillars so what's jesus saying here no matter what you go through if it's a spiritual volcano or a trial because i've made you into a pillar into my house of god you will never fall i'm going to give you strength through it now here's the thing that also happened he says you're never going to go out of the temple here's what also happened due to these frequent earthquakes Many of the citizens were forced to move outside the city for fears of their homes being destroyed. Again, they always lived in fear of another big one. So instead of living in the confines of the protection of these large temples, these large structures, because they were so worried about them falling on them, they moved to the outskirts of town, like into the countryside. And what does Jesus say? Once you come into my house... You're permanently there. You're never going to have to leave. Okay? So that's the first thing Jesus promises them. Well, the second thing Jesus promises them is he will write on us the name of his God. Does that mean when we get to heaven, God's got a big marker and he writes God on our... I don't know, maybe. I think it's more of a metaphor. Really, it signifies ownership. Ownership. Um, How did Jesus buy us? With his blood. Um, later on in Revelation, we'll see that those who've been um, who have overcome have have been sealed on their foreheads with the name of God. Um, Revelation twenty two three through four. No longer will there be anything accursed. Talking about the new heavens and the new earth, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His His name will be on His forehead. So when we talk about writing the name of God, what we're talking about is like divine ownership, how God owns you, okay? So number one, hey guys. So number one, you will have, you'll be a permanent pillar in the household of God. Number two, he will write his name on you, showing ownership, okay? Number three, do we have handouts for the, do we have, okay. Number three, he will write on us the name of the city of his God, the new Jerusalem. Okay, so look at verse um, 12. The one who conquers, number one, I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. Number two, I will write on him the name of my God. Represents ownership. Number three, I will write the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven. Okay, okay. We know that the New Jerusalem at the end of the Book of Revelation is is the Church, the Bride of Christ coming down, and so it's basically um, when it talks about so there's a lot of like temple imagery here. It's, it's talking about being part of God's family, part of God's household for eternity. We've got the permanence, we've got the ownership. The New Jerusalem is this whole idea of intimacy with God, where God dwells. Um, basically a prophecy back in Ezekiel talking about the temple Ezekiel 48 35 the name of the city from that time on shall be the Lord is there so Zion Jerusalem is called the Lord is there so don't you want to be where the Lord is there (laughs) as opposed to anywhere else okay so we will be a permanent pillar in the temple of God God will own us by writing on us a new name. He will give us access to His very presence in the new Jerusalem. And then, again, what we really don't understand here, He's going to write on us a new name. Okay. You're going to get a new name. I don't know what it'll be, but my name probably won't be Sean anymore. I don't know what it'll be. I won't know. I don't, I don't know exactly what this means, but I think at the second coming of Christ, when all things are new, He's going to give you a new name. Don't ask me how it all works out. When He comes back in Revelation 19, verses 11 through 13, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like the flame of fire. On his heads are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's got a name written that no one knows. He is clothed clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he's called is the word of God. So Jesus has a name that nobody knows. You have a name that nobody knows. When he comes back, it'll all be made known. So don't sweat it now. Just... Realize you're going to get a new name then. But Philadelphia, what was the significance of Jesus telling the city of Philadelphia, you're going to get a new name? Okay. In AD 17, remember I said there was a big earthquake? So it leveled the whole town. Caesar used FEMA money, okay, of that time. He used disaster relief money to help rebuild Philadelphia. And he changed the name of the city to Neo-Caesarea, New Caesar, or the city of the New Caesar. Later on, in AD 70 sometime, the city changed its name to Flavia because of a new emperor, Flavian Vespasian. It was always undergoing a name change. Every time they had an earthquake, the emperor would come in. He would do a disaster relief. He'd rebuild the city. He so I'm going to rename the city after my name. So the city was always undergoing a new name. So for these people in Philadelphia, for them to get a new name, they're like, oh, no, not again. We're always getting a new name. But Jesus says, "No, no, wait a minute. The new name I give you is going to be a permanent new name. It's never going to change. What's our name right now? Well, the closest thing we have is in Acts 11.26 in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. 1 Peter 4.16, If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Acts 5.41-42, They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Okay. All these letters to the seven churches end with the same thing. Whoever has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So this is the last thing we see at Philadelphia. He who has an ear, let him hear. There's another thing that that, that history teaches us about Philadelphia. Of all the cities of the seven churches, In Asia Minor, this one remained true to Jesus many centuries later, even when Islam was the dominant religion in that area. Philadelphia historically lasted the longest of any of the churches. The church with little power. Okay, they had little power, but they were the church of the open door. Jesus said, I set before them an open door. Think about how a small, insignificant church that under great great persecution that was at a strategic location in Asia Minor lasted the longest. What I think happened was because they believed they were the church of the open door, they had a missionary mandate to realize we're a strategic city where people are coming and going and we want to go spread the gospel in that that area. So here's the amazing thing about Philadelphia. It's amazing that the smallest, most insignificant church made the longest and widest impact. And yet the most powerful, sophisticated, happening church in Sardis that we saw a few weeks ago had the reputation of being alive but was dead. So sometimes our measure of success is different than God's measure of success. We're too small. We could never adopt an unreached people group in India and take mission trips there. No church in northeastern Colorado goes halfway around the world into villages and walks in and, as Casey does, talks to a woman that's husband. Her husband was like, I can't remember the story there. Was he like dead? Or not dead, he was dying. I know he wasn't dead. He He was mute. he was yeah. He was mute. And you got to witness to, and then he, he, had, he, started, talking. he started talking. Yeah. <laughs> I got to remember that story. So, okay, this is a cool story. So we go into a village in India and Casey goes with us. And we go to this lady and she, she has a mute, mute, uh, let me make sure I get the details right. Husband who could their not, her, their son died. <laughs> okay. And he stopped talking. And how long had he been, not been talking? It was at least a, year. a year, a year. He hadn't talked for a year. And so they, we went into this little hut. There's a little smoke and fire. And he's over in the covers just looking like, kind of like a, like a blank stare on his face. So Casey starts witnessing sharing the gospel with his wife. And she kind of had some issues with what you were saying and talking about Hindu gods. And then what did the man do when you started sharing the gospel? He started talking and then he was arguing with his wife. He started talking and arguing with his wife. So he'd been mute for six months, but then when she started sharing the gospel, he got... So uh, think about it. Sometimes when we're in India and we're like, okay, so you take a plane to India, two planes, two 10-hour planes. Once you get to the one town, I'm not going to mention the towns because this is on Facebook. You probably shouldn't be talking about this. I'll stop this conversation because it's on Facebook. Come to me afterwards and we'll talk about India, okay? So um, anyway, the point is a small church in a no place of significance can have great impact if they remain faithful to the gospel. And that's that's the story of Philadelphia. A big church that thinks they've got it all together like in Sardis, they may have the reputation of being alive, but they're dead. So size isn't everything. It's faithfulness. Okay? You guys ready to move on to Laodicea? All right, we're going to try to finish this tonight, Okay. This is probably the most famous one because it's got the most graphic, the most graphic uh, imagery here. So you're probably used to the imagery here. Now. And I'm going to have to blow your, your little paradigm out of the water on this one too because this has been um, mistranslated a lot. So here we go. Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, the last of the seven churches to the church in Laodicea. So here we go. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Some translations may say vomit. I'm not sure if you're saved, vomit. They vomit you out of my mouth. For you say, church, at Laodicea, I'm rich. I've prospered. And I need nothing If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in him, to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay, the seven aspects. How are we doing on time? we got 30 minutes to finish this. You think we can do it? We'll push through, okay? All right, here we go. The introductory address, what what does the history teach us about Laodicea? Of all the cities we've studied so far, the last of the seven churches on that postal route, Laodicea was by far the most wealthy and affluent. Extensive banking operation, its own stadium, spas, gymnasium, it even had heated streets back in the day. It was the epitome of indulgence. The main manufacturing was black wool from the sheep in the area. Not just any type of wool, but this black wool was soft and glossy. It was the envy of everyone around. So if you wore black wool, it was like, hey, you got your stuff at Neiman Marcus or Saks Fifth Avenue um, or Goodwill. No, you didn't get it. I mean, it was like you went to a you went to this really expensive place to buy that none of us can go to, to buy to buy the black um, wool coats. It also had a world-renowned medical school there. Okay? So it was a city that prided itself on self-sufficiency. We've got medicine. We've got riches. We've got fashion. We've got all these things that make us self-sufficient. Out of all the churches that we've looked at so far, I think this one is probably the closest one to what we struggle with in America right now. Of all the attacks that confront the church, and I believe especially in America, what we deal with is materialism and complacency. Okay? What's not mentioned here? There's no synagogue of Satan. There's no Roman oppression. There's no death penalty. This probably mirrors this probably most closely mirrors American culture. We are rich. We are self-sufficient. We are prideful. We are complacent. We are materialistic. We don't need Jesus. We got it all figured out. Okay? So how does Christ appear to them? What does Christ say? The words of the Amen. Jesus refers to himself as the amen. Now, when we say a prayer, what do we say? Amen. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, what happens if you don't say amen? Does that mean your prayer doesn't go up? <laughs> I forgot to say amen. Okay. We, we think amen means that that's how you end your prayers. Actually, the word means firm, sure, binding, strong foundation. What it means when Jesus says he's the amen, what Jesus is saying is, I'm not the end of your prayer, yes. But he's saying is, I'm certain. I'm the powerful, unchanging God. And he's also the faithful and true witness. We've seen this many times before, that Jesus is the faithful and true witness. And so we also need to be the faithful and true witness. Now, the word witness is very key here. The word witness is key because Jesus is the ultimate witness, but who's he talking to? He's talking to Laodicea. They were the consummate bad witness. Now, I've said this before. You are a witness. Not not an issue whether you're a witness. The question is, are you a good witness or a bad witness? Because somebody's watching you. If you claim claim the, the name of Christ... You're either a good witness or you're a bad witness. And the issue in the book of Revelation, especially for Laodicea, they're not being a very good witness. Okay? All right, let's go to the spiritual evaluation. You've got these famous words of Jesus. You're neither hot nor cold. Now, take out your 21st century way of understanding that what do you normally the way this is normally preached is what hot's really good cold's bad right you got to be on fire for jesus i'd rather you be on fire for jesus or not on fire for jesus but don't be in the middle okay that doesn't make a lot of sense do you want anybody to not be on fire for jesus okay so take out okay so in our modern day way we understand this we automatically think what hot means good cold means bad so be hot that's not what this means. And let me explain to you why. It's all about geography, okay? There were the tri-cities, okay? If you had a map and you were to look at a map, you had Laodicea right there, okay? To the north is a town called Hierapolis. and. Um, Let's look here real quick. Uh, oh, yeah, Colossae. Yeah, Colossae, where the Colossian church was. So these three cities were in close proximity to each other. So Jesus is writing to Laodicea. Okay? Heropolis is the closest city to the north, Colossae is the closest city to the south. What do we know about Heropolis and what do we know about Colossae? Well, let me explain that to you. Okay, Laodicea, for all of its wealth and opulence and materialism, it had a terrible water supply, which was a source of public embarrassment. Um, They tried to build aqueducts and dig wells and and tried to do anything they could to get good good drinking water, but they just couldn't. So think about how embarrassing that is. We are the richest, most powerful city in the area, and we can't get good drinking water, no matter how hard we try. So what did they have to do? They had to rely on getting water from Heropolis. Heropolis is six miles to the north. They had to get water from Heropolis. Now, Heropolis was famous for its hot springs, where there were great medicinal and healing purposes. The hot springs in Heropolis were laden with calcium carbonite and by the time the water came from Heropolis and it traveled down the aqueducts to Laodicea, what would it taste like? How does hot water go when it travels six miles? Lukewarm. And if it's full of calcium carbonate, what, it, what does it taste like? Have you ever had like... One time I went to the, the soda fountain when I was... I can't remember if it was like it. I think it was at Wendy's. I'm, no, no offense. I was like, I think I went to Wendy's one time. And I went up to get a Sprite. And the, the thing you know, comes out, and you drink it, and what do they forget to put in it? They forget to put the actual Sprite, so it's just like carbonated water. It's like the worst taste. Okay. So think about carbonated, not cold carbonated water, but like just like Perrier. If you like Perrier or any of this, like I'm just making making fun of you. If you like Perrier, it's just like it, so. When you drink, so if that water from Hierapolis comes down to Laodicea, it's gonna be the hot springs water. By the time it travels six miles south, it's gonna taste bad. Okay. Now, to make matters worse, to the south was Colossae, and Colossae was in the mountains. It, it was um, it was like. Actually, it was in a valley between some snow-capped mountains where they would get cold, refreshing mountain spring water. Okay? So you have hot water, medicinal water, hot springs. You've got cold, pure spring water. So Colossae is known for their cold water. Heropolis is known for their hot water. Laodicea is known for no, no water. By the time it got, like... If they were to get water from Colossae, by the time it got there, it would be lukewarm. By the time it got from Heropolis, it would not only be lukewarm, but it would taste really bad. So here's what Jesus is saying. He's not saying hot's good, cold is bad. What he's saying to Laodicea is this. The church in Laodicea is like its water supply. It's serving no purpose to the community. It has no value. In Heropolis, the people benefited from their water because it was healing. In Colossae, people benefited from the water because they could drink it. It was nice, cool mountain water. In Laodicea, that church had lost its witness. It's neither providing refreshment to the weary or healing for the spiritually sick. It's become an ineffective church. And what does Jesus say? Because... Of this arrogant and effective lack of spiritual vitality and gospel witness, Jesus is about to vomit them out of his mouth. Now, that's a pretty graphic image. But notice the text. Read, Read the text. Read it carefully. Verse 16. I will spit you out of my mouth. Has he done it yet? He says, I'm about to. Which means what? There's still hope for this church. Jesus always holds out hope for these churches. What does He always say to these churches? Repent. Okay? He always holds out repentance. Now, what's their worst sin? Here's a trick question. Is their sin the fact that they are not being a good witness? Or is their sin the fact that they're blind that they're not a good witness? Take your pick they're not being a good witness and they're blind to the fact that they're they're basically they're cluelessly ignorant of their sin. What do they say? Jesus says there in verse 17, you say, I'm rich. I've prospered. I need nothing. I mean, they don't need God. They don't need his grace. They can do things in their own power. They can command their own destiny. They don't need anything. They've got wealth. They've got power. They've got materialism. They they worship stuff. Contrast this with Smyrna, the second church. They were poverty stricken, but truly rich because they were a faithful witness. Remember, Smyrna had no rebuke. Smyrna was poor, but they were a faithful witness. Laodicea is rich, but they're a terrible witness. And the problem is, they didn't realize how bad they were. So Jesus says, Man, you say that you're all that? Let me tell you what you really are. Look at verse 17. You're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You're poor, blind, and naked. Poor, blind, and naked. What did I say were the three characteristics of the city? Banking, medicine, and textiles for wool. The three most pronounced features of this materialistic town are now turned on their heads as Jesus says what they truly are. They were truly poor. In a town that relied on being wealthy and banking, this would be shocking. What do you mean we're poor? We've got these banks. We've got... We've got riches. What, what do you mean, Jesus? We're poor. You're blind. A town that prided itself on medical advances. Wait a minute. What do you mean we're blind? We've got we've got medicine. We've got we've got all of these modern day advances. They were naked. Now, come on, that's going too far. We're the town of black wool. We buy our clothes at Neiman Marcus. So all the we're the fashion capital of the area. Hierapolis just wished they had those black wool coats that we have. Jesus says, you're poor, blind, and naked. Now, what does Jesus do? He says, come and buy. He's a merchant. They would have traveling salesmen in those days that would come into a town and say, buy water from me, buy food from me. And what does Jesus say? Come buy from me. Now, is he selling like hard goods or are they spiritual things Jesus is offering? Verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. Okay, is he talking about material wealth? White garments so that you may clothe yourselves. Is he talking about real clothing? And the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. Okay, Jesus is going to meet their poor, blind, and wretched, and pitiable, and naked spiritual state with his own spiritual power and resources so to those that are poor the spiritually bankrupt what does jesus give jesus gives gold refined by fire so that they can be rich now they don't need real gold obviously this is um, the pure gold of christ that's our faith peter says in first peter 1 7 so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire may be found to result in the praise and glory at the honor of the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus says, Listen, I'm going to give you true riches spiritually. You're a town that is so wrapped up in the materialism of gold. Come buy true riches from me. Okay. What about those who are naked? the town that prides itself on black wool, what does Jesus say? I'm going to provide you white garments. Now, remember the white garments, what's the symbolism of the color white? It represents the imputed righteousness of Christ in justification where He clothes us with His righteousness so we can be declared not guilty before the Father so when we wear white clothes, it's a symbol of purity. It's a symbol of Christ has saved us. He, you know, he, he's, he's wrapped us in, in, in the righteousness of His, of his, of his Son. So to the, to the poor, I'm going to give you not material gold, but the riches of myself. To those of you that are naked, I'm not going to give you black wool from your town. I'm going to give you the righteousness of Christ. And those who are blind, you're spiritually blind. You don't even see this. You're so clueless. What does Jesus say? I will give you salve. Does your translation say salve or ointment or some type of salve to anoint your eyes? Now, this is where it gets very interesting. Jesus says, listen, you need to be able to see your condition. So I'm going to give you ointment so that your eyes will be open to your idolatry. Here's the interesting thing about Laodicea. Again, everything that Jesus does here relates to the city. Laodicea was known for its famous medical school. And one of the chief things discovered there was the hot commodity called Phrygian powder. It was a doughy paste used to anoint the eyes. So when, they, when Jesus says, I'm going to put salve on your eyes, they would have known, okay, we're, our town's famous for salve. So all of this is the spiritual blessings that Jesus gives. And so this takes us back to Isaiah 55 where God, in Isaiah 55, assumes the role of the, of the salesman coming and telling Israel to, to come purchase. Um, Isaiah 55, 1-3. "'Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price.'" Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligent to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Jesus come, come to me. You're poor, you're blind, you're naked, you don't even know it. Come to me and I will spiritually satisfy your needs. Now, Jesus has already said, I'm about to vomit you out of his mouth. So, (laughs) what more could Jesus say to them in these words of rebuke and correction? Notice what Jesus says there in verse um, 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Those whom I love, I reprove. Now, there's great hope for this church. And for any church that goes out, goes AWOL, I guess. Jesus has not forsaken this church, no matter how bad it's gotten. There's always a chance to repent with urgency. And sometimes, if you don't repent, God will make you repent (laughs) through discipline. Okay, Jesus says, I discipline those whom I love. This comes from Hebrews, Hebrews 12. Five and six, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Okay, we're going to have to move quickly through here. Jesus calls them to... Okay. I'm going to... I'm gonna just teach it and you can go back and I'm not gonna go by this text, okay? Can I just teach it and you guys can follow on later? Okay, because I'm getting confused on the way that the PowerPoint's not going the way. Okay, so let's just look at the scriptures. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. This sometimes people use this as an evangelistic text. You go, you go to a lost person, say, Jesus is just knocking on the door of your heart. If you just open the door, he'll come into your life. So just open give Jesus permission to come into your life. I don't know if I want that kind of Jesus that I have to give him permission to come into my life. This is not Jesus out there knocking on the door of a lost person saying, hey, I really want to come in and be your Savior. Who is he talking to? He's talking to a church. What has the church done? The church in their pride, the church in their arrogance has basically said, Jesus, we don't want you here. (laughs) We're locking you out of the church. So this church needs revival. So when Jesus says, I stand at the door, knock, and I'm going to come in and eat with you, eating was a very strong image of of personal relationship. So what Jesus is saying is, church, you've become so prideful and you've shut me out. The only hope for you is for this renewed intimacy and revival that comes through fellowship with me. So open the door. And let me back in. Okay? The promise to the overcomer. So I skipped a bunch of stuff there just for the sake of time. Um, Who's the ultimate conqueror? He says, I will grant him to sit on my throne. I will grant him to sit on my throne. I also conquered. I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. To the one who conquers, to the one who conquers, to the one who conquers. Who's the ultimate one who conquered? What does Jesus say here? I conquered. Jesus is the ultimate one who niked, who who conquered. It's Jesus. He's the faithful witness. I'm trying to get to where we are so you guys. Okay. Jesus is the faithful witness who endured death on the cross. He overcame and conquered death. He rose again. And he's now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Philippians 2, 6-11 tells us that. You can go back and read that. This is the future of the church, that we will sit on thrones as co-heirs with Christ. Now, you can go back and read those things. The command to listen. Here's where I want to bring it to a close. I know we went through Lydda to see it pretty fast, but I wanted to bring this to a close. For the past seven years, a I minute mean, seven, maybe five weeks. We've looked at these seven churches. And so, I wonder if, after studying these seven churches, we, as a manual, have we truly listened? Notice it's, he who has an ear, let him see, hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. God is still speaking to us today about the state of our church in relation to these churches. So let's recap the seven churches. I'm going to give you just a summary statement about each church. I know that you can go back and read your notes. Um, Ephesus, the first church. They had great theology, great sound doctrine, but they had no passion. They'd lost their first love. They needed to rekindle the passion they had for Christ. Ephesus. Smyrna, they were the impoverished, the poor church, the persecuted church, the church where they were... um, Jesus had nothing against them. Okay. Pergamum. Pergamum was the compromising church. Remember Pergamum? The leadership did not deal with sexual immorality in the congregation. Um, it was the hardest place to live. It was where Jesus said it's Satan's throne. They didn't deal with um, sin in the life of the church. Okay. Thyatira was the seduced church with the false prophetess who tempted them to engage in worldly behavior and not stay true to God's Word. Sardis. Sardis was the church in name only. It had the reputation of being alive but was dead. Philadelphia, what we looked at tonight, was the beloved church that held fast and was a godly example and witness. Laodicea was the blind, arrogant, self-sufficient, nauseating church that needed to, to repent. So as we look at these seven churches, hopefully it's been helpful over the past few weeks to get a glimpse into really what God's called us to be. And as I've said, I'll say it again, in next fall when we actually go through the whole book of Revelation, for the church, there will be persecution from outside, And there will be false doctrine and immorality on the inside. And both of these are pressures that can destroy a church. And as I've said, it sometimes it's easier to see the persecution coming from the outside. It's harder to detect false doctrine and sexual immorality inside. But pressure from outside, pressure from inside are always coming against the church. That's why Jesus says we've got to conquer, we've got to overcome, we've got to stay true to the end. We've got to stay faithful to His Word. Okay? Questions, comments, snide remarks? Observations, clarifications, or condemnations? How do you know the Antichrist isn't around right now? Question on Facebook is, it has nothing to do with the seven churches. Are, are we going to be alive when the Antichrist is around? That's not a fair question. That's like totally off the subject. No, I'm just joking. We, we will we'll get to that, actually. When we get to Revelation chapter 13, when it talks about the beast from the sea and the beast from the earth, we'll talk about that. Yeah. Any other questions? That's next year. Or not next year. That's, well, maybe. The fall when we start stuff. No questions? All right. Well, let's pray. And then, um, oh, next week we're done. So next week I'm not sure what we're going to study. So come prepared to talk about something for the next three or four weeks. I'll pick it unless you have an idea. You can email me or talk to me Sunday at church and say, hey, I really want to study this. And I'll say, thumbs up or... No, I won't. no. We'll we'll come next week. Obviously, we'll we'll do something. I'm not sure what it is. So Facebook, I'm not sure what we'll do either. But hopefully, you'll tune in. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity we have uh, to look at these seven churches. And Lord, in some ways, they've been a mirror into um, the heart of, of our church and our lives. And Lord, we want to be a faithful church. And Lord, um, even this Sunday, as we gather, we're going to be looking at what it means to be a faithful church. And I pray that we would be. Uh, Those that conquer, those that hold fast to the end, those that stay true to your word. Uh, Lord, we would endure pressures that come from outside, the persecution that comes to us from the outside. Lord, we'd be aware of false doctrine on the inside. And Lord, whatever we go through, we have the confidence to know that you'll protect us through it. Lord, sometimes you take us out of it and we're thankful for that. Other times you take us through it and we're thankful for that. All we know is that we just need your grace. We need your power. We need your presence. So thank you for loving us. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for calling us to be your church. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.